Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. I'm not crying, you're crying. Allergies are so bad this season. Oh, you know, the hardest thing ever that the ranch asks me to do is preach after stuff like that. So this is what I decided to do. I said, if I'm going to make this um, uncomfortable for me, let's make it all the way uncomfortable. And after seeing this, the first time I saw this, I was just blown away by it. And so I'm going to preach a text tonight that, um, I'll be honest with you, I avoid this text. Uh, I've been preaching since I was 15 years old, and um, I avoid this text at all cost. I think it is a terrifying passage of scripture. Do you guys know the filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan? You know who he is? Back in the day, he used to be scary. He's the kind of filmmaker that can tell you a story in such a way as to amplify tension in your heart, and then there's some reveal at the end, and it, it, it takes a, a, a quick turn, and there's suspense, and you, you realize, like, oh my gosh, and then you want to go back and, and re-watch the movie. You ever had that experience before? Where there's a moment in the story that redefines everything that you've seen up until that point. And for me, that moment in the story of Scripture is always the cross of Christ. If you can learn, if you can learn to even read the Old Testament narratives that are confusing and confounding through the lens of the cross of Christ, then even those things that bother you. And I, I want to do that tonight. We talked about Abraham last night as this prototypical example, this picture, where, where God gave him this promise of this unique relationship with God, that he was created on purpose for this unique blessing relationship, being drawn close to Father God in this unique relationship. And then he also had a purpose, that he was created for a purpose. And, and this, this purpose was to go into the world and, and, and co-create, to make something of the world, to, to bring the kingdom of God, to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And, you know, Abraham becomes the father of monotheism. And, I mean, the, the three monotheistic faiths all revere Father Abraham as this Genesis point. And, and before all that... The story has a dramatic interruption. I mean, it's so dramatic, and I think this is one of those things, and I'll, I'll be real honest with you. When I was growing up in church, and I was coming to know Jesus, and I would hear people preach from this passage, it was disturbing to me the way they would use this passage, and it actually was a big deal for me. And I've wrestled with this text so much that um, I don't doubt anymore. Like, you know, I had a friend recently tell me, like, Justin, you're the smartest person I know that still has an invisible friend. And uh, like, like, as if I shouldn't believe in God anymore. And I'll tell you, like, as I have grown, so has my faith. Never have I come to the point where I'm like, oh, I outgrew God. That's not how it works at all. Like, as, just, as I grow in understanding and intellect, so God grows in glory and majesty and, and, and awe. And, and this passage, though, is a little disturbing. Now, here's what I want to do. I need you to promise me this. I'm going to create some tension here. I can't lose you along the way. I can't lose you along the way. Promise me you'll stay with me till the end so I can tell you the good news, the gospel, okay? Otherwise, it's going to get real dark in here and you're going to go home and your youth pastor's going to be mad at me and your mom's going to be mad at me and ain't nobody got time for that, okay? I don't need that in my life, right? And you don't either. Okay, so here we go. 
Okay? So Abraham, right? God gives him this promise. You're going to be great. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be, make a great nation. He has a son in his old age, a miraculous thing. I mean, a really miraculous thing. And I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever received a miraculous thing from God, but it changes you. And Abraham receives a miraculous thing, and it's the birth of his son, Isaac. And I want you to think for a second about Isaac. Um, Isaac is the most important person on the planet at the moment of his birth because he represents the child of promise. He represents this idea of blessed to be a blessing. That, that We now know the end of the story. Without Isaac, we don't get the nation of Israel. Without the nation of Israel, we don't get Jesus. This is, a, this is an incredibly important person in the scope of redemptive history. And to Abraham, Isaac is a representative. He is a, a human embodiment. He is a gift from God. He is the covenant of, uh, uh, th- th- that God made with him in the flesh, and he's a constant reminder of this. Isaac is incredibly important. He's not just some kid. And it's good. Things are good. I think at, at the point uh, we're about to read the story here, um, it, it, I thought for a long time Isaac was like a little child, but I actually think he's closer to like 20 years old. He's at least a teenager. And listen to this. And this is, again, stick with me, okay? But listen. I'm in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. I'm already uncomfortable. I hate tests, right? God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, that's not the test, but you always put your name on the top of the test. Step one. Okay. That was a dad joke. I get one a sermon, okay? Lay off. Okay, all right. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love. Now, I want you to pay close attention to how often this passage reminds us of their father-son relationship. Well after it is established for all readers, for, this, for all purposes in history and time, the text continually reminds us about this father-son relationship. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Let me just tell you how this would work. Um, I'm a pastor. If you came into my office and you said, Pastor, I think the Lord spoke to me. I'm supposed to sacrifice one of my children to him. You wouldn't leave my office. I'm just, I'm being dead serious. You wouldn't leave. I I would keep you. I I would hold you there. Um, And I would have a lot of reasons to tell you why that's not what God said. And I'd be confident and I'd be right. No, God told me, I don't think so. I, I know him. He doesn't do that. And even here, God has already, on a stage of human history, revealed himself different, unique among the deities of the ancient Near East. This was a pretty common thing in ancient Near Eastern religion to demand human sacrifice. But Yahweh, the one true God, is different. He's not that way. He's unique. He's different. This is 
You uncomfortable yet? This is where it gets real crazy. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. a lot of faith in that statement. I mean a lot. Me and the boy are going over there. We are coming back. We're going to worship. I mean, this, this story, rarely is this story addressed as an issue of child abuse and human sacrifice. This story is held up as a paragon of faith, Right? So somewhere in here, there's a beautiful lesson about a God who is good and and, and an invitation for us to trust him. But this is not simple, and nor is it trivial. We're going to go over there. We're going to come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son, Isaac. So after a three-day death walk, Isaac carries his own the wood of his sacrifice up the mountain himself. He himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. And finally, Isaac speaks up. Whoa. Hey, Dad. What's going on? I'm starting to get nervous, like really nervous, because this is weird. This isn't like you. He speaks up and he says to his father, Abraham, he says, Father? Yes, my son. It's another reminder. Father and a son. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? There's something about human beings that have been intrinsically known for a long time that our sin and brokenness require sacrifice. Even before we had the revelation of God's spirit and we had scripture, people were doing this in their primitive attempt to close the gap between heaven and earth. Sacrifice has existed. We understand there's something in us that's fractured and broken and our rebellion requires an answer, a payment. And so this is a common practice, again, in the ancient Near East. What? Where, where's, the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, listen, this is so powerful. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham uh, maybe utters the most prophetic statement that's ever been uttered. I don't know if he can see through the halls of time. I don't know if he can see in this moment eternity collapsed into this particular moment. And he actually sees the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, who carries the wood of his sacrifice up the mountain and is dead for three days. I don't know. 
But Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it and he bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I'm a parent. This is agony to me. He laid him on the wood, tied up. And he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Now this is where I want to talk just for a second here, okay? First let's talk about what this text says about Abraham. For three days they walk. We have laws in our country about premeditated crimes versus like crimes of passion. There's one level of responsibility when you make an impulsive decision. There's another level of responsibility when this is a premeditated or planned act. There is a long enough time between, yeah, I think I'm hearing from God or maybe I'm crazy. And when they get to this space, there's three days. Now the three days is not random. That is a three day death walk. If you're a parent in this room, you know, Abraham never knew suffering worse than he did on that three-day journey. It was agony. Every single step, his feet were led. Every single moment, his, his thoughts were dark. Every single second, his heart was broken because his son to him was dead for three days. Like sky go dark, sun black out. I'm not sure what to do. Like, like, like my God, my God, why have you forsaken me level of agony? Are you with me here? Three days in the grave. Abraham and Isaac. Then what does this text say uh, about, about Isaac? Here's a question for you. How does Isaac leave this moment, his binding a follower of Yahweh? How does he leave and, 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 and walk into faith? This is as much about his faith as it is about Abraham's faith. I mean, think about the amount of therapy you would require if your parents did this to you. I just, I want you to think about this for a second. This isn't normal, okay? This is not right. This is wrong. Everything in you, your skin should be crawling because the image of God in your heart knows this is, there's something icky here. Now listen, there, this, is, this is the biggest question. What does it say about God? This is a difficult text, but it's part of sacred scripture. It is here to reveal the heart and nature of God. Listen to me. This is so important. God is not like Molech or Baal or Asherah, these idols of the ancient Near East. He's different. He's good. This is the God that draws you to himself with love and mercy and beauty. This is the God. Listen, I'm telling you, you could be compelled to obey or surrender to a God like this who would demand sacrifice because, well, he made you, he's in charge, he's sovereign. You would surrender to that because you're outmatched. But at the heart of what God wants from his creation is not obedience. At the heart, what did Jesus say is at the heart? What is the most important commandment? It's love. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. The Hebrew people prayed that prayer, the Shema, every morning, every evening. Out of Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with everything. If God is after your love, the one thing he wants from you, his creature, is the one thing he is powerless to command that you give him. Love can't be coerced. It's only freely given. He need, it requires this act of willful gift. It's, it's, it's an act of volition. It involves choosing. Obedience can be compelled. Love is different. Would you love this God? Now, I just wrestle with that for just a moment. You might serve him. You might obey him. But would you love him? I grew up hearing people talk about this text. as just, It was a test, Justin. God's testing Abraham. That's all it is. It's a test. Just why does this bother you so much? It's just a test. It's a sick test. That's why. I don't know what to do with this. It creates tension that I'm like, I, would I love this God? I mean, that, think about this for a second. What, what kind of test is that? It's dark. It's not simple. That's for sure. And Man, I wrestle with this. And I just wonder like, oh, what is this saying about God? It's just scripture everywhere else paints a different picture. It almost seems out of character. I've actually heard commentators wrestle with the, 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 the name for God in this passage is not Yahweh, it's Elohim. It's a different word. And it's like, is this somehow, and you know, this is, there are, this is something that, that, that Jew, uh, Jewish scholars have wrestled with and Christian scholars have wrestled with. I mean, it's a sacred text for, for multiple faiths. There's so many commentaries written about this passage right here. And this is where my nightmare, and I'm telling you, it's a nightmare. I've wrestled with this. It's caused doubt. It is, this, is, this is an issue. Because if God is after my heart, he's after my love, what's going on? Listen to how this ends. Abraham has the knife in his hand. Okay, now, I, I want to be clear. It is not unusual for the gods of the ancient world to demand a human sacrifice. But it's unusual for this God. He, 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 he reviles that. He says over and over and over again how vile that is in the, in, the, in the Mosaic law. Abraham has the knife. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here, here I am, God. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now time out for a second. I would hear preachers talk about this and this is what they would do. And I don't, I may have done this at some point in my life too. It's, it's tempting to do this, but they would say things like, you need to emulate Abraham's faith and lay your Isaac on the altar. Just follow that logic for a second. As if the, the girlfriend that I'm idolatry, idolatrously coveting or the job that I'm clinging to in some idolatrous way or, or some possession that I have, God demands I surrender this thing, compares in any way, shape, or form to a parent killing their child. Not a good analogy. How many times in this text do we see your son, your only son, whom you love? Um, I'm wrestling with this one night, and it hit me. 
Um, sometimes in Scripture, when you're introduced to a new word, a really important word, like, like love, the very first time we're introduced to the word in the, in, in the meta-narrative, the grand story of Scripture, does something to define the word for us. So we encounter this word. Uh, theologians will call this the, the principle of first mention. Do you know this is the first time we hear the word love in the entire Bible? Right here, love. We haven't heard it yet. Not in the Garden of Eden. Not in the first 11 chapters of Genesis do we hear the word love. We hear it first here. And it's not in the context of a love for a husband and a wife, or a man and a woman. Not in the context between brothers or sisters. It's in the context of the love of a father for his son his only son. You with me? I think God is inviting us in this story. He's preparing our hearts for something important. We have to understand something about love and often tension and, and uncomfortableness, those moments where we're like drawn into the story and we lean out in this risky sense and then there's something that swoops in at the end and it reframes everything for us. If this is a type, if this is preparing our hearts for something to come, I wondered, what if we took this idea of, of the, the principle of first mention and we put that into the New Testament? So what does it look like? Where do we first encounter love in the Gospels. Now listen to this. Listen, this is, this, is, this is awesome. Remember, we first learn about love in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, in the context of the love between a father and his son. Turn to the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 17. At the baptism of Jesus, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Wow. That's, that sounds like what that was. Let's go to Mark's gospel. Same event, the baptism of Jesus. And a voice came from heaven, Mark 1, 11, You're my son whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. Luke's gospel, same thing. The baptism of Jesus, Luke 3, 22, And a voice from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Three times as we enter the New Testament to learn about the love of God present in Jesus, we are introduced to love in the context of the love of God the Father for his son Christ. If Abraham loved Isaac, how much more? How much more did our heavenly Father love his perfect one and only son? How much more did he love Jesus? Now here's the thing about the Gospels. So John, John's a little different than the other three. And I know, I'm like, I'm, it's going to be different in John. Because John's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They call those the synoptic gospels. John's a little different. But John is also like, he, he, he gets called the writer of love. He, he uses the word love 13 times more than the other three. Like, I mean, he just, he, he writes about this. He, he calls himself the one Jesus loved in his gospel. I mean, this is, he, he's different. This is a, a brand new thing. What would John's gospel say about love? And listen to this. This is where it leaves me stunned. This is where my nightmare, wrestling with the tension of the binding of Isaac, turns into something so beautiful. And it's in John chapter 3, verse 16. You know this. For God so loved you. You. 
God loved you and me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Three times the New Testament shouts of the love of God for his son, his only son, his only begotten son, his special son. But then John tells us the most significant truth about love the Bible contains, that God loved us so much, he was willing to put his son in Isaac's place. Why does God... Call, Isaac, call Abraham to put Isaac on the altar. It's to prepare our hearts for the idea of substitution. It's to get us in the tension of the reality that our sin has alienated us from God in an unrepairable way and we need something different. We need a sacrifice. We need a substitute. We need to encounter the transforming work of love in, in, a, in a powerful way that we could never get on our own. God loved us so much that he was willing to give his only beloved son, allowing him to die so we might live. Abraham said it. God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. Let's pray. Somehow, God, this story that kind of creeps us out, leaves us feeling uncomfortable and wanting to call social services, in it we meet something remarkable. It's like the moment in the movie that, that resolves the tension and makes us want to go back and read the entire thing. Lord, if we could hear every story in light of the cross, if we could hear every moment, every bit of struggle Every, every tear that we've shed, every, every sin that we've committed, every moment of our own stories, if we could frame them all th through the truth of your love, your love for Christ and the perfection of, of your son, and, and yet that perfection was exchanged to death itself because of your love for us. Heavenly Father, we're floored by that. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the lamb. Thank you for being life. Thank you for being love that found us when we didn't deserve it. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.